If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Early afternoon is a time when we're actually designed to sleep. You know, we often think we're designed just to sleep once, but actually we've evolved to sleep twice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the On The Edge with Andrew Gold podcast with today's guest, award-winning science author and TV presenter, Dr. Stuart Faramond. He'll be talking about how to live the perfect day from your sleep and your coffee in the morning through to your work habits and commutes and then your exercise and evening routine. Before going on about the lovely Stuart, I just want to shamelessly boast that you're listening to the UK's number one ranked podcast in the documentary category of Apple Podcasts, where it is also in the new and noteworthy curation. That means there are loads of new listeners. Welcome to the show. I hope you enjoy it. Old listeners, play nice, show them the ropes. What am I talking about? Seriously, though, I started this podcast just six months ago. So listen to this. The first month had only four listens. The following month had over 200 listens. Now, the podcast is a full-time job and a busy one at that, so it means basically not sleeping. So I had to weigh up at that point whether it was worth continuing the show with just 200 listens. What kept me going, and I mean this, was the abundance of lovely, kind and uplifting messages from you listeners, which has continued steadily to this day. I kept going, and last month, December, we had 30,000 listens in that month alone. And last week, the show passed 100,000 all-time listens. I worked out that had we stayed at 200 per month, it would have taken 41 years and 9 months to reach that total. So this is just a quick thank you to all of you. Without you, the show would just be me and some admittedly wonderful guests shouting into the wind. And thank you to those first four listeners that first month, whoever you were. Anyway, I've eaten into Dr. Stuart Faramond's time here, eating and time being two of the main themes of his book, The Science of Living, 219 Reasons to Rethink Your Daily Routine. In the US and probably Canada, it's known as Live Your Best Life. Very American. Live Your Best Life. Uh, Link in the show notes. It's a gorgeous book, really beautifully designed, and would make for a wonderful present for someone. Each page has a question such as, why is waking up so hard? I can relate to that one. Why do I have bad breath when I wake up? Yep, tick. Will skipping breakfast make me fat? Will wearing a coat indoors mean I'm colder when I go out? And is my phone ruining my sex life? Each question and page is adorned with lovely images and graphs that are really accessible and easy even for someone of my limited neural capacities. We have a fun and interesting chat, 
Things do get a little heavier in the final third of today's episode as Stuart talks about undergoing surgery for a brain tumour. He speaks incredibly emotionally but also informatively about the subject and provides some inspirational pearls of wisdom to end on. Like last week's podcast with Yasmin Mohammed, there is a bit of a funny extra that I include in the outro, so do stick around. By the way, Stuart talked originally about a documentary on surviving terminal cancer by Ben Williams, who has managed to extend his life for decades after only being given months to live. It didn't make this show because I had to kill my darlings, so to speak, and cut, cut, cut. It's all cutting to get it down to the right time. But find the link to that documentary also in the show notes, as well as links to Stuart's social pages. Each week, we get a question from a patron, somebody signed up to support the show. This week's question, unusually, comes from my very supportive girlfriend, Julieta, and you'll hear that midway through the episode. I hope you enjoy and learn a bit about how to live a better life. I'll be back at the end. Enjoyed the um, one, this most recent one about the uh, the Muslim lady. Oh, did you listen to it? Yeah, yeah, listen to it. Yeah, I've got on, I've got unsubscribed now, so um, so I oh. get them when they come in. So yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. I mean, that one. Um, oh, it's just it's so it's so difficult because uh, as soon as you put something out like that, I kept having to remind people. So that was obviously an ex-Muslim uh, talking about mm-hmm. how difficult it was breaking free of Islam. I did like um, I, I kept putting notes out about it, like. By the way, we have done ones about, you know, an ex-Hasidic Jew. We've done ones with an ex-Mormon, an ex-Jehovah's Yeah, Witness. no, you, you're covering yourself very well there, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because... You're, you're really opening yourself up for Stefania with it, something so... Yeah, because cause let's be honest, if you see someone... If you see someone doing that, if I saw someone releasing stuff about ex-Muslims and all that, I would probably also assume, oh God, it's some right-wing nut job. So... Mm. <laughs> I don't know why that is, but I, I mean, I guess this podcast to sum it up in a way is that it's sort of quite anti-dogma, anti-ideology mm. and stuff. So that's why mm. I like to have scientists sometimes as well, because you guys are mm. tend to be quite anti-dogmatic, although I guess not everyone's different, aren't they? Are you a dogmatic person? What do you mean by dogmatic? <laughs> I don't know. Ideological? I don't know. There, you know what? There were some great bits, actually, which I was going to get onto later, but we're on it now, about sort of cognitive bias and, and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, are there parts of your book that you would see as any way political like that, for example? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I probably, if you want to look at it from a political point of view, it's got a sort of a slight feminist slant to it. Um, there's a few bits in there. I don't know if you, did you pick that up when you were going through it? Yes, Yep. You know, because science has very been biased towards men, typically scientific research is done on men because women have the complication of hormones and and periods. And so, you know, that's an extra factor that, that you know, largely male scientific community go, oh, I can do without that, just keep it simple. And we'll just go with guys. And so historically, everything's been based on, on men. And mm. and it's just it's just not right because the female physiology is different to the male physiology. I like the the symptoms that a woman will have from a heart attack, for example, are different from those of a, of a man. You probably know that like a heart attack is crushing chest chest pain and maybe in the left arm. You know that's the kind of the classical Oof. thing and collapsing. Yep. But for but for women that's because um, that's from the medical textbooks. But for women, it's often different. They may not have the, the classical chest pain. And so women are often diagnosed late when they come in. So they have more nondescript kind of chest tightness, maybe, or pain in a different place. Maybe it isn't in the left arm. 
or maybe it's more kind of nausea. There's just other other symptoms that aren't completely apparent because it's not in the textbooks because everything is is male focused. So I'm kind of, you know, going through this. I'm just very aware of that, and I just wanted to bring that. The whole point of the book is to, you know, you know, open people's eyes to to science and actually think mm. that science is something actually quite simple that all of us can understand. Because yeah. I guess originally I I trained as a medical doctor, then I went into teaching. Um, going into teaching, I realised that actually the whole medical speak and the whole scientific community thing, we use long words unnecessarily. Mm. It's just, you know, you, all the time you like you read, a, you know, you read magazines and they just people just use long words and doctors are terrible at it. Um, yeah, and, it's, yeah. and it's often subtle words that people have different meanings or have different meanings. So, you know, I would say chronic. So let's say, Andrew, you have chronic depression. I mean, I don't know if you, if that's true or not, but you would probably interpret that and anybody listening to that would interpret that as being really serious, really serious depression. Can I guess what it means? Yeah, I'm not even sure, but it means it means just unending, long. Long, over a long period of time, yeah. So okay. acute means over a short period of time. So acute chest pain means it's chest pain that's started suddenly. It doesn't matter what the nature of, of that pain is because acute, people don't think it's sharp, it's excruciating, but acute in the medical sense just means it's over a short period of time. Um, whereas chronic means it's going over a long period of time. So you could have chronic chest pain, which just means it's been going on for ages. So that's yeah. that's the difference. But it's these little things, and they'll put it in. They'll write it in medical letters. They'll say this person's had chronic kidney problems, meaning yeah. that they've had kidney problems going on a long time. And the person reading that will go, "Oh my gosh, have I got terrible kidney problems?" And all they mean is that it's been going on a long time, and it's and that just drives me mad. You call it highbrow babble. Highbrow babble. Yes, that's that's a yeah, good term like for that. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think they're the terms that I use, isn't it? Yeah. Highbrow babble. Yeah, in the book, yeah. I was going to ask, actually, but you've answered it. Why does science teach us to hide behind jargon? Well, why, why do they do that? When I first um, started medical school, I went to medical school in Nottingham. And Nottingham was, was famously one of the ones that that bucked the trend in that you, from the first year, you went into hospitals, you met patients, whereas historically the first three years would be preclinical, you'd just be in lectures, and then mm. the, the second half of it, uh, the last two years, you'd, you'd meet patients. And so part of the whole kind of the the, the Nottingham thing was that you uh, you meet doctors early on. And I remember we were sat in, um, in a lab and there was a GP that sat down with us and he said... He said, you guys are in a unique situation because you understand what the person on the street grasps. You see, because with me, I've been through the I've been through the medical school machine. I've been squeezed through a tube like, you know, like a sausage is made and I've come out the other end and I've forgotten what what the everyday person understands. And I and, and I talk in, in long words that that you know are difficult for people to people to access. It didn't quite say it in those terms, but essentially that is what he's saying. You 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 learn all the all the highbrow science and and the technical terms, and a lot of those terms it's important because they have to be precise. So teaching when I taught um, these were sixteen, seventeen year old girls largely when I when I left medicine, it just made me realise actually these I talked to them about these things and. And they they don't get it, you know, and that's not that's not their fault because and they're actually a barometer of what the person mm. on the street gets, you know. I think for most of us, unless you go off and do science or something, then after you get to about sixteen, seventeen, most people probably don't go into science any further than that. And so that is the point at mm. which people's, you know, scientific literacy I wonder if some people sort of enjoy 
knowing that other people can't understand them completely completely huge <laughs> yeah just there's a lot of egos there's a lot of egos yeah. yeah yeah i think that's across every every field isn't it I, I studied literature at university and like the amount of stuff that was said well and and the funny thing was everybody just like worships orwell he was so pro using just the simplest word never use a complicated word or a long word mm. when a short word will do mm. um and yet you know the way that they'll look down at something like harry potter which has given me hours of joy because yeah. it's just simple words and simple literature so there's a lot of that it's a skill though isn't it and a lot of there's a lot of sort of scientists like uh, tv scientists such as yourself or you know obviously one probably the most famous tv scientist in the uk is professor brian cox um yeah and, and that's a real skill to have to be able to mm. relay that one of my best friends is a um, biologist and he is always getting wound up by hearing scientists explain things and he's like that, mm. the person's not going to understand that you know no so, no all the time i'm the same do you find yourself getting better and better at it is it a skill you you learn better i think you always do i mean one one great thing is my wife's a florist and she has zero interest in in science whatsoever so mm. if her eyes glaze over and she doesn't understand what i'm talking about then that's you know, i've always thought that that's a good sort of gauge of of is this engaging is this interesting or not and does this make right. sense? I'll, I'll try and keep my eyes looking straight so you don't think I'm glazing over. <laughs> no, one of the things that um, I went to, so some of my backstory is that I was originally a medical doctor and then, you know, I, I allude to this in the book, is that I was diagnosed with a brain tumour, what is now mm. probably about 12 years ago, and that caused me to leave medicine and I went into teaching uh, kind of out of necessity of getting a job. And I taught for three years in in with 16 to 18 year olds, teaching a health and social care kind of vocational qualification in a further education college, which is like a like a, an alternative to, to high schools, I guess. And from that, I it, sort of by serendipity, I ended up, here you go, long words. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, by, by fortune, um, yeah. I ended up sort of writing a writing a science blog. This was back in 2011 when blog writing was was pretty you know yeah. it was quite it was quite new sorry i have to interrupt for that because i interviewed the first ever blogger on this um a couple of months ago who's from wow. 1991 and now he has the first ever blog and it's called links.net wow. and because he hasn't been doing much on it recently it's still there though you can look at it it's like a prehistoric dinosaur links.net i'm now <laughs> the first thing that comes up on it because he did a blog about me interviewing him so you look at basically the oldest pretty much the oldest website in the world i'm on the front mm. page of it now but sorry <laughs> well done kudos to you that's awesome yeah. thank you yeah go uh, on sorry um you were yeah. blogging you were writing a blog yes uh, and yes yeah. yeah, so you see from that and that sort of started this whole kind of science writing science communication thing and one of the sort of the very tongue-in-cheek blogs that i wrote was about the science of biscuit dunking and that got picked up by producers for a one-off BBC documentary by the celebrity chef, the UK celebrity chef known as Nigel Slater. Nigel Slater. Right. He did one on the Great British Biscuit. It's one of these, um, like, let's fill up 45 minutes with some cheap television sort of <laughs> programme. And, and they wanted a little science bit of somebody coming in. You know, they had all the talking heads of why people prefer their, their pink wafer or their chocolate chip cookie and all the rest of it. Yeah. And they wanted the science bit and they found this blog and they picked it up and they got me to come on and do um, do this little science bit on the, on, on the TV programme. And that sort of sort of sparked my interest in sort of reaching a wider, you know, public. Mm-hmm. And I went and so you're asking about <clears throat> do I develop over time? And kind mm-hmm. of, I'm getting to the fact that I went into, I started a a, a a science, a digital science magazine. Me and a couple of other people edited it with sort of, you know, I guess a bit more experience, but we edited it and it was all very much about, let's get rid of all the, the long words. 
and there's 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 a very good table and I might be able to send it to you uh, afterwards of words that scientists use what uh, it means to the public and, and a better word to use that, that a member of the public would use. So, for example, chronic, better use of a word would be long-lasting. So, yeah, I think from that, of sort of critiquing other people's work and then trying to live up to that, you definitely do learn over time. I've already started doing things from your book, uh, and I told you before like, that I've, I just had a nap because I like to have a nap, and sometimes I can't have a nap because I get sleep paralysis, which is also in your book, um, and it's worse when I nap, I find. But the thing was, I was always having about an hour-long nap because that seems like a, a reasonable time. You know, I'll sleep less at night and then wake up early, especially because the builders here at the moment. Um, so they wake they wake me up. And then uh, just now, I, was, I did it for the first time. It was very difficult to do because I, I I slept for twenty minutes, yeah. and it was so hard to do because I did give myself enough time that I still could have done this interview and slept an hour. So I could when I woke up after twenty minutes. The thing was, it was really hard to not just go back to sleep but I pushed myself I got through the first couple of minutes and there's no doubt I feel it might be psychosomatic though but I do feel more awake now than I think I would have had I slept an hour so what's mm. what's that all about early afternoon is a time when we're actually designed to sleep you know we often think we're designed just to sleep once but actually we've evolved mm. to sleep twice you know the middle of the day is the hottest part of the day so between the hours of one and three two and four Essentially, if you, I mean, you're a well-travelled man, but if you've been to somewhere sort of equatorial, you'll know that that is, it's stiflingly hot and you can't do mm. anything. Uh, and so that is the time you need to rest. And, and that's been kind of hard-coded into, into, our, into our DNA. And so we naturally, at that time, at that point of the day, we want to sleep. And it's it's healthy and it's normal for us to do so. So, which is, you know, in the book, I make the point that actually that, that early afternoon after lunch is pretty much productivity dead time. So if you can get some, if you can get some rest, some, mm. you know, even if you go into a darkened room and close your eyes, that's, you know, that that's good. Put a newspaper over your head or something like that. Just just relax and give your time, your body time to rest because that's naturally what your body wants to do. Yeah. Um, and and if you you can sleep, you know, I mean, as, as you know, you can sleep for an hour. Sometimes I sleep for an hour, but the risk of sleeping for an hour is that you slip you you slip into the deep stages of sleep. Um, there's several stages of sleep. There's sort of light sleep when you do all the dreaming, and there's deep sleep when, when you snore, when you're sort of your breathing is deep, and that's when your mm. brain is practically in shutdown. It's really at its, at its very low ebb, and you kind of every night you go into this this semi comatose state, and so if you wake up in the middle of that, which which is kind of quite likely if you're 45 minutes to an hour asleep then you wake up and it's very hard for you to wake up and you get that groggy that we call sleep inertia feeling that sometimes you get in the morning if the alarm's gone off yeah. and you wake up, you're like, oh, what is going on? And and, I, and you can't think for maybe a few minutes up to an hour. And that's a, so that is the danger of sleeping for too long. If you sleep right. for like an hour and a half, maybe, then that's enough time to go into the, into the deep sleep and then back out again because it's just the way that the rhythms go um, throughout the night or when, whenever you sleep. What surprised me, I think, is you were saying that, that it's worse to wake up in a deep sleep when you're not dreaming. Because I always thought, people often say, God, I was in a really deep dream and that's why I've got this sleep inertia. But that's apparently not true at all, right? No, no. It's easier for you to wake up when you're in the, the lightest sleep, which is when you're dreaming, when your brain's very active. So to go from that to awake is a lot easier than going from yeah. this very deep sleep to to being wide awake. Writing the book, there's dozens of if dozens of experts, if you go to the very back in the acknowledgements, you'll see all the people because I can't be an expert on all 
all the 219 things in this thing. <laughs> Somebody counted them, there's 219. It wasn't intended as a specific number. Um, yeah. And so sleep was really fascinating. And to get in touch with the sleep people, um, sleep people, yeah, um, was, um, yeah. I said, you know, what happens when we wake up in the morning? You know, what is going on in the brain? What processes are that going on in the brain? And and they said, you know, basically, and I searched the literature and, 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 and I said, I can't find anything. And these sleep expert guys, they said, that's really interesting. Nobody's ever really done any research into that. So huge amounts of researching, getting to sleep, falling asleep and staying asleep. But when it comes to waking up in the morning, there's very little there. But there's actually yeah. that process is a hugely demanding thing. There's a part, deep, deep part in the brain called the reticular activating system. And that is when that's firing, when that's a light, you're awake, you're conscious. And getting that going in the morning to yeah. make everything wake up takes a lot of a lot of brain cells to do a lot of work. And so when you wake up in the morning, what happens is there's a, there's a hormone called a stress hormone called cortisol. It's, it's very well known. People often say the stress hormone cortisol, but that yeah. has a really important has a really important role is that it gets you going, it gives you energy, it gets you out of bed in the morning. And that cortisol actually starts rising from well, well before you actually wake up. So pre-dawn, cortisol is starting to climb up. It's getting your body ready because it's an ordeal of waking up. And so, you know, and then the system slowly kept going, cortisol build, builds up. Then you wake up, then you get this huge surge of cortisol. So it goes up to the highest point in the day, about half an hour, within the half first half hour after waking. And that's what gets you out of bed, which is why when you wake up in the morning, ideally, you should get out of bed rather than go, oh, lying in bed for another half an hour, which is, I know it's so hard at the moment, isn't it? Because it's like cold and you just don't oh. want to get out of bed. But but if you just stay lying in bed, then actually the cortisol ebbs away and then, right. you know, you just don't want to get out of bed. It's why that lion thing, you know, you have a lion at the weekend and you just feel more tired than you would do normally because basically if you're lying in bed, then you're you're letting the, the body's natural sort of shot in the arm get wasted. What frustrated me, I think, um, because one of the things you talk about is, is how the teenager's uh, sleep cycle um, and by the way, I, I remember I was saying to you by email, like, I'll just pick out a few of my favorites from the book. And it's like, I thought, I don't know why I thought I'd just go like, okay, that one, that one, and that one. And it turned out they were like, well, there were 219 of them that I just, <laughs> I just, every single one of them, I made a list and it was like, oh no, but I've got to ask about that one. Oh, I've got to ask about that one. So it's just too many. So I think I've got a whole big list and we'll just do a few random ones. I wouldn't want to do too many because then there's no point in getting the book. Although the book is very beautiful to look at as well. It is so. very beautiful. Yeah, there's an audio book, but I think the audio book obviously loses something because there's all the we had to work quite hard to sort of try to describe the things in the diagrams without them being um <laughs> Gosh, so yeah it, yeah. Is, it is beautiful thing yeah yeah it's they've really done a great nice. job but yeah so one of the things that really interested me was about teenagers uh that their sleep cycle not just in humans but i think it was apes or chimpanzees it's actually later that's why teenagers want to sleep in and they're so grouchy and difficult part of why they're yeah. like that i remember Absolutely. being at school and i was just like i was knackered the whole time and and it wasn't i got detention week after week not for, for being so naughty because i i just couldn't stay awake and i was ratty because of it and i'd have my head in my hands and think can i get a couple of minutes of micro sleep here in the lesson and it wasn't i i every part of my brain was going please don't do it's embarrassing I, you know i don't want to be the guy messing around but i couldn't stay awake so what's what's that about should we change the times of schools yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's well long overdue. I was the same, and I think most teenagers are the same. You know, that first lesson in the morning, it's maths. You're like, you can't keep your eyes open. Because yeah. essentially, you're jet-lagged the whole time. Your body clock right. is shifted two hours forward. So 7 o'clock in the morning for a teenager is 5 o'clock in the morning. So it's no wonder that you're absolutely knackered. 
and we don't know why this is when you when you're born um or when you're very young your body clock is quite early so you wake up early and you go to bed early um mm. when you're a newborn it's all over the place but but as you form a sort of a day night cycle then it's very early and then as you get older it gets it sort of moves forwards and so again we don't know exactly why it's just part of the maturing brain and uh, and when you get to a teen, when you get to about early twenties, that's when it's at its latest. And so it's and it typically it's two hours later than than an adult. So you're in your thirties, and I'm in my thirties as well. So we're, pro- we're probably sort of middle of, middle of adulthood, and then it goes mm. goes back earlier again. So it starts shifting backwards. And by the time you get to sort of a grandparent age, you, you're, you've got a similar sort of body clock time to basically a ten year old, which mm. I kind of like to think is that. Um, it's it's nature's way of getting the grandparents to enjoy looking after the grandchildren. It's like so they can get up they can get up early in the morning because their their body clock is so and everybody's got an individual sort of body clock timing. So some people are like morning larks and some people are night owls. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just about where that set point is in the day, but that set point shifts throughout the throughout your life. And it's at its latest point when you're in your in your adolescence, which which is interesting because people often say when does adolescence end? Puberty is the is the period of time when you have the bodily changes, and adolescence is the whole period between becoming a child and becoming an adult. I know we say that you know you become an adult when you're 18, or some countries it's 21. In reality, probably more more like in your mid 20s before things have actually started to become adult. And one way in which we sort of mark the end of adolescence, or that is being used to mark the end of adolescence, is when yeah. the when the when the body clock starts to shift back again, which is often in the early, which sort of that marks that we think that that's a good way. People are suggesting that's a good way of saying this is the end of adolescence when the body clock starts to shift backwards towards the more adult adult time of the day. And there's interesting implications for that. Not only the fact that kids teenagers not really kids but teenagers are jet lagged the whole time so you're exhausted all throughout the day you're basically jet lagged all week and then you get to the weekend and you're desperately trying to catch up on sleep and so you lie in so you're sleeping the whole time and and, but you don't you can't ever fully catch up on the lost sleep you can only catch up about two hours sleep a night um so over a weekend you could possibly get about four hours maximum you could claw back four hours sleep but you're still chronically sleep deprived and so it's no wonder that, you know, you naturally want to go to bed at 11, 12 o'clock because that's just how your body clock is and your parents are getting cross with you. Why aren't you going to bed? And you're actually awake in the evening time. Interestingly, um, lots of world records are broken in the evening time because athletes tend to be their 20s, late teens. They're in this sort of this, this late adolescent stage. And so their body clock is very long way shifted forward. And so they're becoming their peak activity. You know, it's one of these little things that when you pick up, when you understand, understand what's going on, you understand the science. You go, oh, that's really interesting. Actually, you can, you could, you can, you and I can plan our day better because if we like to exercise, for example, you know, yeah. the knowledge that eight to nine hours after waking up is the best time for me to be exercising, and that can, you know, as I've just explained it to you, it kind of makes sense that you kind of you're empowered and you can choose: do I want to make make the use of that information or not? So I imagine football players who play at three p.m. on a Saturday must wake up about 7 a.m yeah yeah i reckon so i reckon so yeah so we yeah. we talked about school hours could change but i suppose the practical implications would mean teachers such as yourself would also have to work like an 11 till 7 day <laughs> yeah. yeah that's true <laughs> um though i think you you can just make it easier by just shifting some of the lessons forward um and the thing, you know i mean just move the 
the mentally demanding ones, the the maths and the sciences and all those things, or whatever it is that's you know that's the really this, that leads you to really knuckle down and get your head around like lofty mm. concepts. Just move that away from the the nine a.m. slots and put them to the eleven, mm. twelve o'clock slots. So this is controversial um, then. So what would be the nine a.m. slots? You're going to have to face those <laughs> teachers. <laughs> uh, well, something that's maybe more physical, you know. Okay. I mean, sort of, you know, your physical education, that sort of thing, or... Yeah, a literally lofty concept, that one is, PE. Uh, I don't know, maybe kind of more... I mean, yeah, just put it back an hour and then yeah. start start serious lessons. I was going to say serious lessons, but about <laughs> 10 or 11 o'clock. Yeah, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. The other thing I was going to ask then, if we're talking about real-world implications, mm-hmm. if... The, and there was another section of the book where you said as well that the that someone's... The, the brain doesn't really become an adult brain in terms of sort of adult reasoning and the faculties mm. of control and stuff like that until, uh, what was it, 20s and mid-20s. So yes, right. d- does that have an implication for people who sort of, some people say we should lower the voting age. Maybe that's too political and subjective of a question. But a 16-year-old's brain is, is uh, but then you get into a whole, f- I don't know, I'll let you answer it actually. Yeah, the, the, the growing brain, the teenage brain basically um, develops from the back to the front. And that essentially means that the emotional bits develop before the frontal thinking bits de- develop. Mm. So as... Um, I don't want to refer to the book too much, but I think in the book I make the point that yeah. that a teenager knows what they want before they can articulate what they want. So the example is, I want to go stay overnight at Billy's, at Billy's house. And then mum says, but you did that last night. Why do you want to go again? And the, the response will be, oh, because yeah. I want to. Not being able to articulate, I, you know, is there a reason behind why I do this? Because I want to do something with this other person. And so you can, you feel, you feel, emotions very intensely probably more intensely than we do as an, as an adult um but we don't have the the reasoning skills well i think we do but it just takes longer if you present your problematic teenager with a choice of options and you give them the opportunity to think and take time to reason about it then often they will come to you know a mature adult inverted commas uh, okay. adult decision so it's about giving time you know, it just takes a little bit longer. The emotions are felt first. The thoughts need a bit more time to develop. So uh-huh. so in terms of whether that affects voting, I don't know. I'd like to think that, you know, we all consider our votes less impulsively. And, you know, and teenagers are, are more than more than capable of actually probably more so than many of us to open mindedly assess the facts and decide who is it that they want to they vote for. So I don't think necessarily that 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 fact about the maturing brain, you know, excludes people mm. who are teenagers from voting. Because uh, I think when you're in those adolescent years, as I say, your emotions are very, very full on and very raw. And actually that passion is really important, I think, in politics and getting involved. Because by the time mm. you get to your, your mid-20s and you kind of calm down a bit, often like politics is seen as boring. Yeah. You know, I think we see it with the climate change protests is that young people have the energy, they have the... Mm the dynamism to to sort of really, really use their emotions to sort of be proactive. So I wouldn't necessarily exclude, you know, younger people, but drawing a line, you know, I'd hate to be the person to draw the line between when you can vote and when you can't vote. But maybe 18 is okay for now. We had, I had um, Daniel Finkelstein, who's a Times columnist on this show, and he mm-hmm. was saying um, what was really interesting was that the Vietnam War, there were just as many people who were very, very young, like 18 or so, who were against the war, who were for it as well. It was like if you, the younger people were more likely to be just one way or the other, much more extreme. Kind of polarised, yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's yeah. that emotional reaction. Probably more so, it raises issues about whether 
age people should be when they go and join the army and join the war because you know if you consider that i mean that's a whole other political thing but you know, yeah. don't go into politics in the book i generally steer away from no politics i know and religion I know. and just stick to you know things that are um <laughs> less controversial shall we say yeah I'll, I'll make you say something controversial people still get very hard to the color about the things when you say about the t- best time to have coffee <laughs> There was a piece that went in the in in the, in the Guardian last weekend. Um, yeah. There was a there was a, an excerpt of the book that that I'd kind of picked some bits out for their New Year New You kind of weekend supplement, hmm. and the comments that people and I, the thing is I put in the thing about the best time to have coffee isn't the best time to have coffee isn't the first the first moment that you wake up, and I explain the reason why is that when you first wake up, uh, the level of the sleepiness hormone um, called adenosine is at its lowest. And, and caffeine works by blocking the sleepiness hormones. If you have it first thing in the morning, then actually it's not doing very much because you don't have much of the sleepiness hormone for the caffeine to block. And so it's not doing anything. And, and it's more likely to make you jittery and anxious and uptight. So it's better off just to wait a couple of hours till that adenosine has clawed up a little bit. So that's actually going to have an effect when you have your caffeine. So this was in the article, but the number of people at the bottom have said, poo-poo, load of rubbish. You know, I, I live my first coffee first thing in the morning. Oh, my God. People are so angry. They are angry, yeah. And I wonder about, you know, you would have thought that that, um, that the Guardian readers would be a bit more... You wouldn't have, like, the YouTube. You know, YouTube's the, the pits, isn't it? The worst of humanity in YouTube comments. Yeah. But, but no, but people get very hot under the collar about things, about Man. things that really have no significance at all. But there again, you know, I mean, if people are going to get angry about something, then let them get angry about, you know, when they have their coffee. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> My girlfriend um, was wound up by it. She was probably one of the Guardian commenters. No, she, I mean, she wasn't. She wasn't. She's quite. A, she's a level-headed person, but she likes her coffee. And yeah. I, I showed her that, and she countered with another of your pages, which was about the placebo effect. So she was sort of okay. saying the psychosomatic effect of just sort of taking coffee in the morning felt made her feel awake well that's true and it, it's got a powerful effect and actually there's been some research i don't know if it's been replicated a while ago that they found that the smell of coffee had a had a stimulatory mm. effect similar to the actual taste itself wow. so if you want to just give yourself a whiff of the coffee first thing in the morning make it smell it and then you know turn it into an iced coffee later on maybe i get a funny reaction from coffee it doesn't make me feel more awake at all really and and it, I, if I go for a walk afterwards I find myself mm-hmm. not enjoying the walk at all I've got to get back I feel re- I don't I can't explain the feeling maybe lightheaded or something is that just caffeine just not work for some people uh your your response to caffeine is very unique to you there's a whole bunch mm. of different genes that affect how you metabolize wow. coffee how your brain responds to coffee so some people can't handle caffeine at all it gets them really uptight anxious you can sometimes have almost like borderline panic attacks from mm. from caffeine and other people will um caffeine will linger in the body for a lot longer i've i'm really pleased now that in the uk they brought in some sort of legislation about these the energy drinks i see it all the time you know kids going to school with a big big cans of energy drink and the caffeine you know on the the developing brain a we don't know what the long-term complications are but caffeine does alter the shape of of neurons of brain cells so huge doses of caffeine on a developing brain um and it's no wonder that there's behavioral problems and they don't and kids don't metabolize they don't break down the coffee as quickly as adults do so it's going to be lingering for a hell of a long longer than it does to an adult and even then in an adult it hangs around for a long time so you have a big Mm. 
Starbucks with what three or four espressos in in the middle of the day at lunchtime you're likely in an evening time by the time you go to bed there's probably still an espresso's worth of coffee going through your blood it takes a long time which is why like having coffee very late in the day is going to affect your sleep we once did a thing at university my friend who's the biologist by the way hadn't slept the night before for whatever reason we were 18 and mm. we decided we had we suddenly woke up and we realized oh my god we've got football in half an hour we were knackered we have to go and play football so he just boiled up basically like a pint of espresso for both of us and we both just and i didn't drink coffee i don't drink coffee because i feel bad for it we both necked these pints of espresso thinking well this will help us be brilliant at football went and played football and we were both ill for about four days i mean can caffeine have a real and and also long term is, is caffeine you know we know about cigarettes are obviously bad for you is caffeine bad for regular users um i mean caffeine can kill you yeah, that's the thing, is that you have too high a, a caffeine. I mean, you can get caffeine tablets. They're called Pro Plus in the UK, but they've probably got different yeah. names if they're if they're legal in other countries. Yeah. That's not an advert. It's not an advert, no. Pro Plus. <laughs> other brands are available, like the BBC disclaimer. <laughs> other, other brands are available, yes. Unless they want to pay me, Pro Plus. Yeah. <laughs> then we have to put up, a, put up a little thing. We have to tell YouTube that there's sponsorship in this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. So, yeah, you can easily overdose it. There's some very interesting websites where you can put in how much caffeine does it take to kill me and it'll, it'll give you how many energy drinks and how many how many how many coffees you need to od it but yeah i went to it was the first uh co- i live in the southwest and there's a city mm. called bath and they had their first annual coffee festival a few years ago and i went along and i love coffee i mean i generally drink decaf now but for for you know i think the, the book has had a big effect on me in that sense because i still love the taste of coffee but i went around and it was great it had all these different you know coffees from around the world and you just go around and you have a taste of this a taste of that and it got to lunchtime and i tossed it up and i thought i think i had best part of 20 espressos in the morning and i was absolutely flying high but then come like an hour or two later i was just it was worse than an alcohol hangover it was just awful you just want to be sick yeah. it's grim because it, essentially you know again it's a poison and your body you know your body's ah. trying to get rid of it and it's really is that right yeah yeah essentially yeah i mean it's it's a drug and you know your body hmm. will be breaking it down because it doesn't come from your body your body's getting rid of it so yeah long term long term i don't think we know there's an interesting correlation between coffee drinkers and living a long time it's often pops up in sort of daily mail articles of coffee drinkers live longer um mm. So, yeah, but whether it's the caffeine or not, nobody's ever really looked at, you know, long-term decaffeinated drinking because it's very difficult to, you know, people, very few people drink decaffeinated coffee. Although, interestingly, if you have decaffeinated coffee, you're actually probably getting the best quality coffee beans because Hmm. um, to have, to keep the flavour, the whole process of extracting the caffeine invariably loses some of the, some of the flavour. And so the... The coffee brands will select the best flavored coffee wow. beans for the decaffeinated coffee. So there that's you go. great because that's what I. If I ever have coffee, it's always going to be decaf. So that's. Yeah. I'm happy to hear that. I know, me too. So it's kind of a bigger buzz. Yeah. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. 
To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So each week I get somebody who is a patron of the show. Uh, so they're paying a membership um, to, you know, for the for the show. They get to ask a question to a guest. And this week's one is a. I know I've mentioned her a lot this episode, but this one's my girlfriend. She gives like a few quid to the show as a you know as a sweet thing, because she, so, she wanted to ask a question because she'd been reading the book. So she's going to ask the question. I got it on the recording. Is that all right? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Hi Stuart, I have a question about the effects of alcohol on the human mind. Why do some people get aggressive? Is that the real them coming out? And how come it has such a different effect on different people? That's a great question. That's so. There's so many. There's so much in that. Okay, go on. Uh, the question. Okay, so the question is: Do we people respond differently to alcohol? And again, it's like caffeine. You know, we've all got our own um, genes that control how our liver works, how we process how we process the things that we put in. And again, alcohol is, is essentially, it's a poison and your body's getting rid of it. And it's the stages in which it breaks it down as to, as to what causes the hangover in the morning. But there's this, thankfully it's going out of fashion now 
that this idea that alcohol brings out your true self is quite an old-fashioned huh. thing of you know I, I always thought this people used to tell me this when I was younger you know if you want yeah. to know the real person give them some drinks yeah. and they'll they'll really speak their mind it's no what it does is it is it powers down your inhibitions so you lose your you lose your your self-control um but it doesn't reveal you you make you make bad decisions um you but you often will say things that you don't actually mean mm. you know so you're basically powering down the the logical thinking parts of your brain um and yes you'll be more emotionally raw you'll say things without thinking but it's not a case of that's the real you coming out that's the effect of a drug of a mind-altering drug on you any more than if you were to take any other sort of if we take a narcotic sure. or something, you wouldn't say that's the real me coming out. That's an effect of a drug on you and on your personality. So yeah. just because somebody gets aggressive or violent when they're on alcohol, that doesn't mean that they're an aggressive or violent person. That's their reaction to it. Mm. And sorry, there was another part of the question, wasn't there? So I guess she's asking whether it's sort of why it affects some people and makes some people more aggressive and not others. Yeah, I guess that comes part of that comes to personality and about 50% of your personality comes down to genes. Mm. So I would I would say that how you respond to alcohol there'll be a significant portion of that that will come down to your genes, your predisposition, the way in which your your brain cells that the networks mm. in your brain respond to this this drug that affects the the neurotransmitter balance neurotransmitters are basically chemicals or hormones in the brain that do the that send messages mm. around it sort of it upsets that balance huh. so so yeah your response to alcohol will be unique to you it will affect how you behave it will alter your personality but it doesn't isn't actually revealing the true you Wow. It's a it's a mind altering substance with its effect on you. So don't think I'll find out how you know whether she really loves me by <laughs> pouring her a huge huge glass of red wine. She will lose her inhibitions, so she may well be more likely to jump in bed with you. That doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> that her her real heartfelt feeling yeah. is that she loves you. So essentially, yeah. yeah. So there you are. Yeah. Now it sounds like there was a question I asked that was edited out about why my my girlfriend <laughs> might or might not sleep with me. <laughs> but yeah, that's a great answer, and I'm I think. Uh, my best mate since I was a kid, he, he was um, an alcoholic and he's now teetotal mm. and has been for five or mm. six years. And I think he'll be really happy to hear that because, I mean, if I'm, I'll be honest, he was a monster when he'd had mm. only two or three beers like the rest of us had had. And suddenly yeah. he was just off the charts. It was just yeah. bonkers. The sweetest guy you'd ever meet without a beer. Mm. And whereas I'd have a bunch and I would just get tired and sleepy, which is no fun yeah, either. Absolutely. I just sort of yeah. be in the corner, just like, all right, when's it time to get home and all that. I know it's weird, isn't it? Everybody's sort of idiosyncratic to, um, yeah. to the effects of of these drugs, yeah. But it is, it's, it's you know, it's a dangerous drug, and I, you know, it's another sort of one of my soapboxes, like the, um, the energy drink thing. I, you know, I think that alcohol's way too socially acceptable because mm. it's really dangerous. You know, you know, we all know people whose lives have been completely screwed up by alcohol. Why do we get so angry when we're in a car? Do you get angry in a car? I don't drive anymore. Um, mm. I, so I, um, as I said, I was the reason I left medicine was because I had this brain tumour, had it removed, and I developed epilepsy as a result, which okay. consequently made that I couldn't um, practice medicine anymore because you know you're a liability if you're working in hospital and you're on a crash call in the middle of the night and you have a fit. You just sort of multiplied the the issues. So that ultimately meant that I couldn't. There probably are some people who have epilepsy who do yeah. medicine, but in the in the job I was in, it wasn't it wasn't possible. Um, yeah. uh, but that also meant that I can't I didn't drive. Of course, and yeah. yeah. So while I probably could have applied for my license back, 
I don't really like driving. Never really have liked driving. And, and I think <laughs> I probably never will drive again now because just over a year ago, I needed more surgery uh, mm. on my brain for the tumour that had had kind of grown back. So was I an irate driver? I don't think I was, although it's very easy to. I mean, I love I love cycling and cycling again you can get you can very easily get cross with people when people just i'm a cyclist as well but the reason it happens is because we are separated we're when you're in a car you're in this little sort of soundproof metal bubble uh and and you just see other vehicles you don't see that there is there are other people traveling around you just see an object and that object is preventing you to get from a to b and actually there might be another person in there you, you know if somebody were walking in the street it's not likely that if they bump into you you're going to start shaking your fist and swearing at them um i don't know if that's still true but i you know but the fact is that yeah. you're if um if you're in a, if you're in a vehicle then you don't do that you and there's this um fundamental attribution bias is what it's called it's so that we excuse our own uh mistakes on external factors I drove really bad this morning because the kids were screaming in the back. The weather was right. bad. I woke up in a bad mood. Somebody else made that really terrible manoeuvre because they're a bad person. They were, they're, they're, they're careless. They're not thinking. It's something int- intrinsically wrong with that person. So we excuse ourselves and we, we think the worst of other people in these situations where we cannot see them. And so part of it is that we're walled off in this thing and so we can't engage with them. One of the things that I recommend that, that people try to do to sort of engage those empathy uh, circuits in the brain when we think of other people is to try get a picture of a loved one, a child, somebody you care about, and stick it up quite visibly on the on the on the dashboard. And then when uh. you're you're looking around, just that might just remind you that you know to engage that there are other people in the world. This is somebody sure. who I care for and that I love. And so that person in the car, they may be driving badly because they've got kids screaming in the back. Whatever. They, they've got their own life as well. And it's about that engaging that thing. And also, if you're in a rush, if you're trying to get from A to B quicker, then it will more you're more likely to engage that. There's a, the fight or flight response. So when you get uptight, when the adrenaline is pumping, the frontal thinking parts of your brain power down and you just mm-hmm. go into reacting. So and you just, you, you don't, you don't think you... You just you're in self defense mode, so you will blurt out, you will maybe honk your horn, you may well make an, a rash maneuver, and that's all biology. So calming yeah. yourself down, don't you know, give yourself plenty of time, pick the routes that are going to be most calming. Some people, there is there was some research that said that color green is more relaxing. So you know, mm. some some people might say if you put in some like greenery in your in your <laughs> car, that might help. But anything yeah. that you can do to calm down, fast paced music will uh, make your make you more likely to get aggressive than slower calming music so yeah, all little tips and things that you can do so but they're the they're the reasons it's sort of an inevitable consequence of us being in these little encased boxes you might be able to help me because there's an anecdote that i often tell but i don't actually understand it so you might know it better than than me but uh, uh or you might not have heard of this but it was a book by will store and he was talking about an experiment um where they got people with epilepsy and they did something so that only like, this is going to sound mad. They would show them a scary photo or something mm. in one eye. They'd like cut the brain in half or something. Yeah. Do you know what I'm going to say? The, the, there was a different response on the, whichever eye they showed them. Yeah. Yeah. Or it was like, yeah, because they could only remember stuff they'd seen in that eye. And when, when the doctors or her, the scientists said, okay, do, why are you scared? They didn't remember having seen it, mm. but they knew they were scared. And every single one of them made up a reason for why they were scared. So it was it was mm. like, oh, oh, it was because you looked at me funny, because uh, this morning something happened to me. 
Are you able to explain that better than what I've just done? Yeah, it's a really strange thing that the, the two hemispheres, the two sides of the brain, um, in some respects, it's really weird, this, this, this split brain idea that, that they can almost act independently and almost make decisions and think independently of one another. Um, so there are lots of, you can, you can look them up, there's all sorts of strange things where you, you ask one side of the brain a question and it gives a different response to the other side of the brain. Wow. And lots of really freaky things. I don't, I don't profess to understand it, but it is very, it is weird. And it's, you know, if, huh. if that interests you, look into it because it's really, it's really fascinating stuff. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, what you're describing is confabulation, which is when we know something, but we can't explain it. And you'll see this with people who are chronic alcoholics. Um, what happens is there's um, the memory centers in their brain. Typically, there's a there's little sort of two little lumps on the on the brain that are crucial to memory called the mammillary bodies. And they can get burnt out with chronic alcoholics. And what happens is in, in people who... Um, who have basically shot their memory from from alcohol is that they can't remember the short term, so the short term memory's gone. So I had it when I was in hospital one time, and there was a guy that came in, and I went in, you know, pulled the curtains around, said, you know, who are you? What's happened? And he gave me this whole story of how he ended up in hospital, and I introduced myself. I said, Hi, I'm Stu. I'm one of the uh, I'm one of the one of the medical doctors here. Took his blood, and I said, Right, I'll be back in a little bit. I'm gonna gonna get these results and come back and see you. And went back and literally like three minutes later went back in the room and he said, Who are you? Huh. And then he and then he gave a completely different story as to how he got there oh. and he completely forgot ever ever meeting me. And that was literally because he'd you know, he was his 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 memory circuitry had been had been fried. It's called uh, Korsakoff's dementia, I think that's how you pronounce it. So you huh. you lose that that part of your memory. And so in order to to try and explain, you you just make stuff up. And that's oh. called confabulation. And, you don't so, and what you're it. describing there is this is this natural want of your brain. The same thing happens with memory. Your brain wants to fill in the gaps and it will put in a best guess situation. So you say you're involved in, a, in an accident or something. There's a car accident, let's say. And the thing is, is you're not going to remember all the details and your brain will fill in the gaps. So your mind is doing it all the time. It's filling in gaps with best guesses. And so the same thing is happening there. So yeah, it's kind of humbling that actually wow. a lot of the time our brain is just making stuff up guessing stuff it's just a, it's guess just a guessing machine our brain we just have to be aware of that don't we i'm fascinated by that more than anything i think that's why a lot of the documentaries i've done so with like an exorcist for example and i'm just thinking mm. how do these people believe all these things and they you know mm. that kind of thing how do you feel about talking about the brain tumor and all of that stuff or do you would you rather skip that no more than happy to you know because i think a lot of people have found a great um you know find it quite inspirational so i'm more than happy to sort of share my story i explained about it you know in the preface of the book because it is i think it is really important Mm. important yeah so i guess um i was diagnosed with brain cancer when i was working in hospital it was an incidental finding which means it's sort of found by accidents and it was a slow-growing tumor um and yeah, I was work- and I was having tests for other things as it happens for some hormone imbalances. And as as part of the the, the tests, they did a scan of my brain and they found this tumor was growing on the um, right frontal part of the brain. No symptoms at all, but they said this is a this is a slow growing brain cancer, brain tumor, brain cancer. The kind of the two words word words synonymously. Um, and they, they had surgery to take it out. So it was kind of a couple of months after I was diagnosed. Um, it was taken out. I developed epilepsy as a consequence of it. Tried to go back to work over the over the ensuing sort of twelve to eighteen months. Basically, it was a bit of a complete fail. Sort of had 
you know, crippling fatigue and ha- was having seizures, not often, but enough that um, it sort of made going back to work pretty impossible. Um, mm. Yeah, and one thing that you find with any kind of brain injury uh, is that fatigue is a huge thing. And, and I, if you've never suffered fatigue, it's, it's something that is very poorly understood. I remember my wife, she said, I just said, I've got no energy the whole time. She's like, come on, pick yourself up, get yourself going. But literally, if you suffer fatigue, and it happens a lot with brain injuries, uh, any kind of brain damage, because you essentially, you take out a chunk and it's like the kind of the London Underground. You take out some of the a chunk of the London Underground and to get the commuters around, everything has to work so much harder. So oh. your brain's having to work so much harder. So you get tired more quickly. So you're exhausted in the middle of the day because your brain's having to be worked overtime just to compensate. So fatigue was terrible. Uh, tried going back to work and, and I wasn't able to. Uh, I had another operation to sort of help treat the, the epilepsy because I had one very bad seizure one time. And then, you know, after that point, after the second surgery, um, it basically was like, I can't get back to work. And so I went into mm. the whole teaching thing because um, just doctoring wasn't going to be, wasn't going to be a go. And then since then, it's all, I've been having six monthly MRI scans to check on its progress because the, the, the wisdom is that it will always grow. You cut, you chop it out, but there's always bits left behind and it will invariably grow back. And as it grows back, it, it invariably becomes more aggressive as it does. And at some point, you know, this is going to, it's going to get you. And so mm-hmm. in order to sort of be able to preempt it as quickly as possible, they do regular scanning. And I happen to be on a, a six monthly sort of scanning, scanning sure. regime. Essentially, they, it was, it's been growing back slowly and they missed it for a good couple of years. So, um, how do they miss it? Because they were having it every six months and because it was very slowly growing, and what the radiologists were doing was that they were going, oh, comparing this one with the most recent one and going, oh, yeah, it looks the same, you know, no significant mm. change, stable. I go in every six months, say, okay, he get the report out and say, stable, yeah, there's no growth, you're fine. And I went, okay, that's great. And then it was one time when I went in and my usual consultant was away. Uh, I don't know what the reason was, but there was, there was somebody, that she was a stand-in. Um, and she she had met me before, so she took it upon herself to look through the scans and went back through the scans and came in and had a chat with her. And she said, I, I've not met you before, I've just been going through the scans. Anybody told you that your tumour's been growing? You know, I look back about oh three or four God. years ago, and you've had significant growth. I was like, no. And so all of a sudden, you know, your world turns upside down. Yeah. Yeah. What does that, that moment, what does that feel like? Uh, well, I guess, you know, it's like any kind of bad news. There's sort of, there's that. You know, there's that moment of disbelief, and then there's the, you know, it's kind of like like the grieving process. There's the disbelief. There's the kind of the bargaining. There's the, uh, there's the sadness, um, and it's just you know, it's emotionally, it's very hard. It's just coming to terms with it. But I think throughout it all, it's not, it's never been just me on my own. It's been me and my wife, and I think mm-hmm. that's really really important to have support of friends and family. Um, you know, go through this. This is, you know, and I think people who go through these ordeals, few people do it on their own. I think for me especially, I think this, you know, it's been the support and love of, of other people around me that's helped us get through this. So that led to um, a sequence of events whereby I sought help elsewhere. I got expert expertise from elsewhere because essentially I didn't trust these guys anymore. Um, and so I got, I sent, mm. and eventually, even though they told me it's okay, you can watch and wait. You don't have to have an operation just yet. Because I said, they said, do you want an operation? I said, no, not really. I'm quite happy. You know, why would I want an operation? I don't want to go through all that pain again, you know, having your head cut open, um, you know, 
it's, it's not very nice. Um, obviously, having big chunks of your brain taken out. And that's an extraordinary feeling in itself. Very few people go through that. Very few, I imagine. I mean, I guess when you're under the operation, you don't feel anything. I mean, I've kind of lost some hair now because I've um, had radiotherapy this last year. But yeah, essentially mm-hmm. end up with a huge scar. So you, your skull is very painful. Uh, the most recent operation that I had done about 18 months ago, the, the, the surgeon, he was quite... Um, he was quite proud of himself. I woke up, uh, this guy called Thanos, a Greek guy, right. very, very few people skills. You know, he is the, he is the epitome of using long words when, when a short one would do. And right. he was most excited about telling me the size that he had to take out a dessert uh, plate sized piece of skull out of my head to, uh, to, to get in uh, and to take all the tumour out. I was like, wow. But yeah, you get, I mean, it, it hurts for a long time. I still get headaches now. And you know, sometimes I could feel the bone move a little bit and soon after the operation, you'd have kind of squelching noises in your head sometimes, which is right. really disconcerting. Like if you you jump up and down or you turn your head too quickly, you get this squelching noise in your head. Um, Did you feel thankful for modern medicine or angry that they had missed it when they should have got, gotten it earlier with modern medicine? Angry? Um, mm. You know, I mean, I'm always thankful. You know, the fact is that we've got the NHS, which, you know, is absolutely amazing. Had I been another part of the world, I'd be bankrupt by now. You know, I've had wow. tens of thousands of pounds worth of surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, ongoing care, scans. You know, and I'm, I'm honestly lucky to be alive. I do some work for a, uh, a brain tumor not-for-profit, and I realise how in many parts of the world I'd be long dead by now. All said and done, it was I considered their care of me had been had been neglectful, and I say that as a doctor as well. I'm of the opinion that when your when your patient comes in, yes, you get the report from the radiologist, whoever it is, but then you you say that's their report, but I'm going to look at the result myself. So you always question the report. You never take anything at face value. That's yeah. what I was I was always told. And if I can't, if somebody had come in and just tested me and said what's wrong with this person, I didn't look at the didn't look at the scan itself then I'd have been severely reprimanded. And so I was just cross with it. And that there wasn't, there's processes in place now and I'm sort of making movements so that this thing doesn't, because I'm, I'm angry for other people that this happens all the time. You know, with these slow growing tumours, people are just overlooking it. They're not realising this is a serious, you know, life-threatening condition that you need to be very, very careful of. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm just, I'm just cross that I just don't want it to happen to other people, you know, because yeah. yeah. what's been done with, has been done, but... You know, I would I would like that to come out of this that there would be a policy change. So that's the kind of you know that's been sort of like a bit of a thing that's come out of it. Mm. So yeah, but I'm doing very I'm doing very well now. I mean, I sort of and I seem to have weathered the after this most recent operation, which as I said, I sought expertise elsewhere uh, and got treated up in had my surgery up in Birmingham and now I'm being treated where there's top team up there, amazing. And I'm now being treated with the the ongoing kind of chemotherapy care in the Royal Marsden, which is one of the hospitals in London. Um, right. So I have to travel across there to have it all have it all done. Um, but yeah, I seem to have weathered the, um, the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy really well. And, you know, the scans are great. You know, they said actually you can't see any of the tumour at the moment, which is brilliant. Wow. You can't really, can't really expect anything else, which is amazing, really. I mean, the whole, whole of the podcast could go into about, you know, the supplements and the things and the whole controversy about, um, you know, conventional medicine, um, um, mm-hmm. And so I take a lot of sort of supplements and what people repurpose medicines in, a, in an attempt to boost the effect of the conventional medicines. Right. Um, and so I, I attribute some of that, the fact that there was some tumour left in there, but they can't see any of it now. 
to the fact that I have responded very well to the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy and supported by lots of evidence-based, you know, supplements and, and medicines, you know, that would be that are typically used for other things that for which there's good evidence that it can help brain tumours and can help cancers. You know, unfortunately, and I'm a bit disappointed as a as a medical for, uh, as a medical doctor that it's still sort of poo-pooed anything that is out of the ordinary um right. you know in the same way that they will see my good response as being oh the chemotherapies work really well you know rather than you know yes actually you're choosing to live very healthy um look after yourself and stay very fit and taking these supplements which are likely to to benefit to work alongside your your conventional care they wouldn't attribute it to that they just say oh you've been lucky that's great you know which, yeah. is, which is really disappointing it's a bit sort of closed mind in this in this day and age you're talking about still the supplements and stuff it's still sort of modern science stuff not homeopathy yeah no absolutely no there's no this isn't quackery this is this yeah. is based on there are there are studies if people are interested there's a chap called professor ben williams who mm. uh is a former harvard professor who was diagnosed back in the 90s with a highly aggressive kind of brain tumor and i'm aware he's one anecdote and you know red flags akimbo yeah. when you a go-go whenever you know somebody says i know somebody who got healed sure. from x y and z but he took it upon himself and this is in pre-internet era uh took it upon himself to learn as much as he could about about glioblastoma which was the time of tumor that he had and sort of just went through all the journals and educated himself and found lots of obscure small trials of things that have been tried in in Asia that weren't used in the West of sort of supplements and extracts and things that seem to have seem to have an anti-cancer effect in mm. in his kind of tumor and so he catalogued all these things and he went around and he basically built himself up a cocktail of different supplements and in the same way that you know my conventional medical training tells me that's really dangerous what are you doing adding lots of things to to a medicine mm. that we know works but if you if you think of it in the terms of actually it's like hiv therapy which is which is which is multiple drug therapy because one drug uh, isn't enough because the disease in that case a virus can learn to beat that one drug and in the same way cancer can learn to beat one chemotherapy cancers invariably build up a resistance to any kind of one chemotherapy which is why treating with multiple chemotherapies and multiple treatments is much more mm. likely to work you kind of block it you're attacking it from multiple angles with the hope that it will, you'll completely destroy it so he adopted this philosophy and he's he wrote a book about it he's still living now you know mm. so what decades after you know he was diagnosed when he was given 18 months to live all those years ago i, I read an article that you wrote though that, that had like seven Oh, for five uh, new techniques, you know, there was a kind of hat that you can wear. Mm. And we obviously had, you know, Dr. Andrew Steele was on a couple of weeks ago. That's talking about aging. But a huge part yeah. of the stopping aging thing was was all about cancer, brain tumors, dementia. Mm. Those mm. are the kinds of things that stop aging. And he's really, you know, so so are you, are you excited for those things? Or was that was that more of just like a fun article? Or, or do you think that's really coming in? Yeah, I, that was an article about upcoming therapies. So that was more about the interesting sort of, uh, things that are going through conventional, um, you know, clinical trials, mm. and so yeah, and, and that is that there are things coming online. Um, so the thing is, is, is been just one of the things that I wrote about is the anti-cancer hat, uh, which is now called Optune. This isn't really a hat; it's a thing that you place on your on your head and you wear around. And you've got a battery pack for it, and that's based on um, a discovery that 
rapidly alternating electrical fields impair cancer cell replication, cancer growth. And so they've developed this product that, that sits on the head and so can treat the cancer sort of non-invasively. They're also developing for other kind of cancers like pancreatic cancer that are very hard to get to. Um, so that's one, but there's lots of other sort of different interesting sort of technologies because brain tumours are very difficult to treat. You know, there's been very little improvement in life expectancy over the last 20 to 30 years. You know, every other cancer pretty much has seen significant, with a few exceptions, has seen significant improvements. Like breast cancer, for example, used to be a death sentence. And now, you know, you and I probably know somebody who's had breast cancer and has mm -hmm. just has outlived it. Um, yep. But brain cancer, unfortunately, is still back in the dark ages. And that's through a lack of funding. Um, because it's been very low profile and like, you know, breast cancer, I mean, rightly so, it's a very, 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 uh, very well known, very much more common cancer, but things like leukemia have been, you know, they, they got very media friendly because there's lots of, you know, it is a very mm -hmm. serious condition, but other things get forgotten. So brain tumors, for example, are the leading cause of cancer death in under 40s, but very mm -hmm. few people realize that, for example. Wow. Uh, but and it gets less than one percent typically of cancer funding, so it's those, it's those things, and also the fact that it's very difficult to get drugs into the brain. There's a thing called the blood-brain right. barrier, which is like the protective coat around the brain that's that's supposed to stop toxins getting in, but it's also very good at stopping medicines getting in. Do you feel optimistic? How do you feel? Like, how has it changed how you live every day? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess to come back to the book. Um, you know, I think where you realise when mortality stares you in the face, it very does change your perspective on life. You know, life is a, is a, is a fragile and precious thing. You know, I mean, you realise that in, you know, as a doctor, when you see the line between life and death is, is fine, you know, for all of us. And um, yes, yeah, and it's about uh, savouring life. And the book is essentially is about, you know, making the best of every day, living your best life. I'm happier now than I ever have been. And that's off the mm. back that, you know, that I've got this horrible looming diagnosis over me. You know, I, you know, my relationships are better. My relationship with my wife are better. You know, life is life is more fun. I'm, you know, I'm I'm blessed in many ways. I'm doing something wow. that I love. What what more is it to want? <laughs> yeah. Okay, be honest. Early on, how many times did you yawn because we were talking about sleep? Write into let me know exactly how many times. And by the way, it's the only time I don't mind you yawning while listening to this. If we're talking about sleep, that's okay. I'm quite tempted now to yawn, but I'm going to see if I can stifle it while I talk, which is a weird thing to do. Seriously, though, it was a pleasure having Dr. Stuart Faramond on the show. I loved his book. It inspired many a debate with my girlfriend, Julieta, the star of today's show. Thank you, Julieta, for your endless support and putting up with me and for signing up to my Patreon, of course, even if it is the lower tier. You can support the show as well in the lower or higher tier and help it run for less than the price of a cup of coffee per month on patreon.com slash andrewgold. As per last week, I'm including here a little snippet as Stuart and I were saying goodbye with the good doctor's permission. 
You didn't ask any questions about language because I know that you know you there are lots of languages. Yeah, well, that I didn't. I didn't. There isn't anything in the book. Of, there isn't really anything oh, about languages. But is there stuff to ask about languages? No, there isn't. But I was just curious that you know you didn't you didn't come in about. I, I thought you might have got something about learning and intelligence and languages, but no, we didn't. The reason for that, and there were a couple of times while you were talking that it even entered yeah. my mind to to ask, and I was going to say I was actually going to bring it up. The thing is, you become more just as you're saying yourself. You become more aware of sort of. God, I'm talking about myself again. And I've done now 35 episodes or something like that. And probably most of them I've mentioned the fact that I speak five languages. So people are catching on to my gloating, boastful self a little bit. (laughs) No more language chat. Stop showing off. He's a lovely guy, Stuart. Um, So I'm glad he brought that up. And it was very, very nice talking to him. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Write in to let me know your thoughts and what you learned on andrewgold underscore OK on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I love people getting in touch. So does Stuart. You'll find him on at realdrstew, S-T-U, also on Twitter and Instagram. So that's handy. Please do leave any reviews on Apple, preferably, you know, nice positive ones, of course. I'm not going to ask you to leave bad ones. If you don't have Apple, you can help by sharing, telling friends, tweeting, posting. Thank you so much to the recent Apple review from somebody called TechSupport84. Probably the year they were born rather than their age, but could be either. They wrote, GOLD! Always believe in you. No, they wrote gold. Andrew is gold. There you go. With five stars, I can't complain. I've been posting out lots of other nice things that people have said about the podcast on Twitter, so get on there to see more reaction. Next week, we welcome Professor Sue Black, a Scottish forensic anthropologist who is known, among many, many other things, for catching a paedophile by analysing his hands that had been left in some incriminating video. And the following week will be the amazing Nimco Ali, an activist against female genital mutilation. If you're on Patreon, if you're one of my patrons and want to ask a question to one of those two amazing guests, that's Sue Black and Nimco Ali, um, just get in touch and let me know. See you next week. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.